ain't from Memphis, honey. I ain't from Nashville, Tennessee. Ain't from Alabama, and I ain't trying to be. No, ma'am, I'm from Texas, and the blues believe in me. I think it's very fitting that the first person I bring on to such an endeavor is the man who nicknamed me Beezy, Charlie Crockett. Yeah. You know, the reason, you know, I'm not the kind of person who assigns myself a nickname. You know, I took Beezy on, you gave it to me. And I was like, yeah, I'll take Beezy. I don't fucking run with it. Hell yeah. And so, everybody calls you Beezy now. I right? love it. I love it. I love having a nickname. I love, you know, not, I love pretending to be a blues musician when I get up on stage to be... Next to you, I feel like I'm pretending. But anyway, oh, so the sucking up, kissing ass, who, you know, we know each other part. It's out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, you know, that's, that's uh -huh. just part of it. It's, it's to be acknowledged. But I, I do want to start, like, back, you know, and uh, uh, the opportunity to interview you. It's something that doesn't, you know, you're a friend of mine, and it's not something that we've organically learned what we've learned about each other. And I really did like the opportunity to just be like, What's your actual story? I was born in the Rio Grande Valley, and that's in deep South Texas, about 10 minutes from Mexico, where the Rio Grande comes out at the Gulf of Mexico, uh, literally the southernmost point of the very bottom of Texas. Yeah, and I was born in the town of San Benito. Same town as a Tejano kind of rock and roll star that's not uh, somebody a lot of people in New York would know, but was was really well known in his in his, you know for his genre, a guy named Freddie Fender, a name people hear, but don't really realize a lot of the music. And he was doing like Tejano music and blues and his face is painted on the water tower down there in San Benito. And besides that, you would so you grow you grew up knowing who he was. No, I just we just have this strange thing in common where I was born. This oh, little, really? Yeah, we was born in this little town. You know, both born in San Benito and, you know, playing music. And that's the only reason it has any significance. Were your parents in music or what did your parents do? Oh, well, my daddy was, you know, not around in those days. He was a wild man. Nobody, you know, he was, he was nobody, in the wind. You know, nobody saw him. He was in the wind for 20 years or so. I know him now, but only as an adult. He pours concrete down in Texas now. You know, he can pour some concrete and he can grow some tomatoes. And my mama, she's a, she's a writer. And but she's gotten by hustling really hard as a single woman coming up in Texas ain't easy. But she managed to educate herself after I was born down there in the valley and uh, managed to uh, get into advertising. And so, you know, my daddy, he pours concrete over the earth. My mama fills it with. She covers it with bullshit. Yeah. Hey, I'm well, in, she's I'm good at she's, but she's good. I'm at in it. advertising. I That's can make why that you joke. can relate. You know, yeah. I, you know, she's damn good at it. No, yeah, the I truth mean, well told. It's 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 a living. Even better writer, very creative. That's where I, you know, that's where I get it. Yeah, that's good. But yeah, that's where I, that's where and I'm from. Yeah. Were you when you were coming up? Did you uh, when you were young? Like, was music a big part of your life when you were younger? Like yeah. as far as like it was around the house or something mm -hmm. that something that you can look back and be like, oh, I can see how that was my trajectory is being in music. Yeah. Well, you know, we moved up to Dallas, my mama and I, when I was six or seven. And, uh, you know, she was struggling to make it. And uh, I was around her a lot. You know, she was working a lot. But whenever she was around, she was, <clears throat> you know, she was really playing she really was playing all the old blues and the rock and roll. And, uh, you know, I was really into B.B. King and I was listening to ZZ Top and, uh, you know, 
a lot of those sounds and she would always sing. I mean, she just, she just always sang and, and, and had such a beautiful voice. What's and, your earliest memory of this? Like how old, how far back do you remember this? You know, as early as I can remember, you know, she even down in South Texas, she'd just be, you know, be in the kitchen, washing dishes, doing stuff and just singing. Always while she was cleaning, you know, and I'll and, and you know, and I sang, too, you know, and, and it was encouraging. And, and I never I never felt self-conscious about it. So I think well before I ever picked up a guitar, I was ready. I felt I sang the words to every song I liked mm. from very young. So that helped, you know, I had an uncle. My uncle Hayes Crockett, um, he used to he lived in New Orleans for first thirteen years of my life or something like that, and uh, he would take me down. I'd go. I, he would take me down there every year. I'd be there in the summers. Uh, you know, sometimes I wouldn't be even be in school. You know, I'd just be down there. And uh, he worked at a restaurant down in the French Quarter, and uh, and so I was around. And he was listening to the, all the old big band swing and the New Orleans music and all that. It's just in the, you're just hearing it. The second lines are coming down the street. The brass, even when I was young, I remember these crazy brass bands, you know, and that was just, you know, going back and forth between Dallas and New Orleans. I think that's kind of what I remember. And then as a teenager, I stopped going out there, but that really stuck with me until I ended up playing the streets there again in the last, you know, in the last, you know, five, six years. Um, but I started working in Dallas when I was 14. I started sacking groceries, you know, uh, just to get some kind of income. When when did you start seeing that you were going to move towards music? Was that a quick transition or was it something that came over you slow? I was one of those people that was singing the songs that I loved and I was taking it serious, you know, and I and I and I think I was taking it serious well before I had any reason or understanding of why I needed to take it serious. That was just something that I did, you know, and found myself really trying to sound as good as the stuff that I was hearing. And, and I think I just needed to. I think it was another level for me to sing the songs that I liked and sing them well. Um, but really, there was a major t turning point. And I think my, you know, my mama knew I needed an outlet. And she made some moves. It wasn't by many, any means easy. But she had a friend that used to be part of this thing in, in the Dallas area called Irving City Limits. And it was kind of like Austin City Limits, but way more grassroots you know, singer-songwriter rounds and people showing up and it was in some backroom places and the dirtier parts of, of the Dallas area. And my mama knew that and was kind of connected to those people. And this woman uh, down there who was involved in the music scene, she kind of really, you know, went out of her way and, and helped find a really good guitar and help my mom out and all that kind of stuff. And she put a guitar in my hands at 17. And I think the second she handed me that, all of a sudden I immediate, immediately found this way to get the music out of me that was in there. And, I, and, and, and that was really immediate thing. I think once I started playing on the guitar strings, no matter what it sounded like, that was it, you know, and I just was obsessed with it from, you know, that point to now. And so now moved up out of Texas, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and take a listen to the title track off your uh, little first release coming up here on August 30th at the carnival. Get up out of Texas.
Beezy's asking the tough questions behind the scenes. You know, we we went off the record. We went off the record. Y'all just listened to a hell of a track. I love it. And it's Charlie telling his story. Went out, got Californiafied. But there's parts of the story that um, when we took the break, it's like, you know, Charlie, when I met you, you were telling me some heavy things about Wall Street douchebaggery. And your brother and a lot of people got in trouble for it. From the story I've pieced together from drunken conversations we've had hanging out unofficially, and now I'm trying to, like, you know, we're sitting here talking. What's the fucking record? Well, you know, um, it's kind of like the stuff that I'm sure we'll get into, you know, being underground on the subways and, and doing the whole kind of underground collective that we, you know, called train robbers really where that comes from for me is one way i can describe what happened with me and my my older brother my brother you know was doing a seven-year sentence in federal prison he has a 95 million dollar judgment against him meaning he owns the he owes the u.s government 95 million dollars he ripped a lot of money out of the stock market uh my brother didn't even you know complete the ninth grade but he was a hustler you know, and it's something that's in, in the blood. What I would tell people about what happened with the stock market and what was going on was that we were essentially modern day train robbers, you know, and really we were, you know, I mean, the stock market's a moving train yet people don't understand. And I certainly had no understanding. I'm just curious, did you, have you seen the Wolf of Wall Street, that movie that came out? Yeah, you know, I did see it. I, had, I didn't I mean, know if that resonated for you, if that was anything similar, but I thought of you when I saw that movie. It did. Like, it was that, you know, not only does my brother look like Leonardo DiCaprio, he, <laughs> he's, the character that he plays in that film is identically my brother. You know, I met him once in passing at a, at some, at a really crazy um, rendezvous at the Pierre 
hotel here in Manhattan years ago, my brother, you know, would be flying around on all these private jets and I'd be going with them. The reason I was involved is um, being 10 years younger than him and having being half brothers. I'm, I'm a Crockett related to Davy Crockett. He's a Langford. The U.S. government, you know, had no idea that all these accounts that were put in my name when I was just a teenager, you know, literally just turning 18 um, were actually controlled by other people. I was a patsy for my brother who was yet a patsy for people even larger than him in you know, this conspiracy scheme, which I had no education or any business being in except for I just happened to be the one person that my brother could trust brother could to put his money into. You know, and basically they were doing what's called pump and dump schemes, um, taking control of companies or creating you know, companies, um, making them look like, you know, it's, you know, it's the next big company and the stock price is going to go to the moon. Um, and they just dump the shares onto the market and move on to the next, you know, that, that's, uh, yeah, essentially, you know, it's, it's on every level of America, but these guys are at a smaller, you know, version of that, but which is still hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of several years. It was enough know. to get that he got prosecuted. Sure. You know, I mean, he owes $95 million to the government and I'd say, I mean, he, I can't really say, but I mean, the man, I know he made, you know, 20, 50 million dollars, something like that. Well, when I met you, you were very kind of cagey about some things until I remember you're like, okay, this is out. Like you sent me a newspaper, there's an article out there about it mm. or something. Oh, yeah. We, it was all over, you know, Dallas morning news. And, you know, like I said, everybody went to prison, really. You know, yeah. the only reason I didn't go to prison is because of my age and, it was very obvious to them that I had no understanding, you know, of yeah. the type of. Um, but you were thrown out of being in the Wolf of Wall Street, however peripheral you you were. You were close enough. I mean, like I made a lot. You of told, I made a lot of money. You made some all, money. You had some fun. I hit, yeah, you know, a few million dollars moved through my account, you know, and then it all disappeared. You know, we went from lower white class citizens to the upper stratosphere and you know for three years of my life you know i was riding around on private planes and and um traveling around america and, and seeing all these you know big money people in new york city and san francisco and you know europe and stuff like that and you know my brother's a crazy guy he didn't really understand the stock market the reality is that he was a promoter what he was good at is promoting you know um and he was really good at convincing people to, you know, buy him, buy into his image, you know, and, and, and that's really how he was proven to be valuable by these bigger lawyers and stuff that used to work for enforcement. And they learn all that information and get out and use it to rip the market off itself, which is the nature of the beast. You know, that's the way that it is, um, you know, dog eat dog, yeah. you know, and um, yeah, it spit me out. It spit me out. And, and so where you landed on, how'd you land in New York? Three years of my life was just like an abs a completely like a lucid dream. But you know, when you don't come from money, you don't have money, you know, it, you don't hold, you can't hold on to it. And even if I would have been able to, you know, it wouldn't have mattered because all that was taken away and all the men I knew were older and every one of them went to jail. 
you know, and most of them are sitting in some jail now and had drug addictions and all kind of stuff like that. And in some ways I was lower, you know, I felt lower after the financial success that I had than before it even started when I had nothing, I was just trying to do music. But because of my experience, you know, coming from the bottom and then seeing the top in terms of having power with money, um, I knew that I could never, I knew that I could never be the same. I knew that I could never be normal. I knew I could never fit in again because of taking that path. I mean, you rarely see people from the lowest classes. We well, you get, you get access pretty to big that. glimpse behind the curtain. Just having a million dollars, just you have that for any period. You having that kind of money in an account. I felt the changes overtaking me. And then my, you know, Joshua, my older half brother, it was 10 times that for him because the money was 10 times that for him. And then the men, the older men that were taking advantage of him, you know, him as well, uh, you know, it was even, it was even larger. Um, but there's nothing, you know, had the money continued, you know, who knows what would have happened. You know, because I know it was only growing and I thought it would never. Well, end. I mean, in those terms, would you say you're, you're thankful it came to an end? You know, I am. I'm glad it didn't go that way because to have the experience that I did really gave me the these extra pieces to pursue my art, to pursue my music that well, they were already there. But it added it to me. You know, I, I saw I saw behind the painted veil. In a lot of ways and not not really when I had the money really when you lose it and realize that it, it's it's really as if it doesn't exist and then that's and then from that point on I remember I lost everything I was young 21 you know 18 to 21 is when all that money was I mean it was wild I had no idea what it was like to have that kind of power and, and I lost it so fast um, I just it, it created a burning desire in me to you know to take the chances I needed to take playing music and the main guy this dude his name is George David Gordon this guy made six seven hundred million dollars over the course of ten years running these schemes in the stock market on the lower level I was in DC with him when I was being represented and he told me you know young man right now you have the money and I have the experience. But when this whole thing's said and done, I will have the money and you will have had the experience. And it was a really ominous thing. I was actually standing on the, sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial outside of the Securities and Exchange Commission's offices there. And we were eating food and that's what he told me, you know? And it was ironic because at the time I had no idea that he was the main focus point of the investigation. I mean, this guy had, had this guy was fucking he had balls. He was he was representing all the people that he had set up to take the fall in front of the very people who were after him. And he knew they were after him. That's how cocky this guy was. And he said that statement to me and I couldn't understand it at the time. Didn't quite know what he meant. But the way I look at it now is it's like, you know what? Y'all are all in prison, you know. And you did make a lot of money and maybe he most likely he has tons of money waiting for him when he gets out, you know. But for me, I see his statement. It's like, wow, you know, I had the money. It came through me and then I lost it. And now I'm left with the experience and the experience 
what happened to me is was the most valuable part. The money is almost of little consequence, really, because it changed. Well, you said the. I think you already said the key phrase of uh, you saw behind the veil. Saw behind the veil, and uh, I think it's fitting with what you're talking about, which is the fiction of the fucking stock market that you're a part of. And I'm gonna play my favorite Charlie Crockett song that he does not play anymore. Or do you remember how to play it? I don't even remember how to play it, but I have a recording of it, and it was actually at my wedding. The uh, with fiction. Deb and I danced to that. We wanted you and the the gypsy kids to come play, but you guys were busy. That's the beautiful thing about this carnival coming up on the 30th. With you at the carnival and Curtis Eller, it's the two artists who didn't play my wedding that I really wish would have been able wow. to go. Yeah. I didn't bother to invite Curtis because it seemed well, cheesy. To, like, but So I'm going to go ahead and play my favorite song, my favorite Charlie Crockett song, Fiction, in the hope that maybe he'll play it again, and we'll be back after that. Just my favorite 
So we're back from my favorite song, Fiction. And uh, so we're picking up sort of from here. I'd like to pick up your... Because the last time I heard Fiction was when you showed up in New York and you were playing your songs that you've moved on from since then. And and a lot of that transition seemed to happen like after you went through your train robbers phase, which just... How do you get from when you came to New York to the train robbers? Mm. Well... Fiction, right? I wrote fiction on the roof of the building you lived in, in deep Bushwick, off, over there off Halsey. I wrote it up on the roof in like a July summer day melting up there. That's where I wrote it, start to finish up there. And that was the thing, man. Like That was part of all I've been doing for all these years, man. Staying on the street. I, music. The street is where I was able to get the time to play music. And then the people like yourself and a long list of people here in New York and all over the country who gave me a chance, took me in and said, Charlie, you're creative. I really believe in you. I believe you should, you, you should pursue in that. And while you're staying with me, I, I want you to create your art. And over the years, all the times I've crashed with you, think about all the crazy stuff I used to do coming into your house all hours of the day at the wildest times. Remember I used to fucking, you know, graffiti 
all over the walls, my poetry. And I'd be writing on all those old paint cards, you know, from the Ace Hardware and handing them out in the subways. And, you know, I used to play on West 4th Street, you know, for change. Up, I knew these different spots. I could make quick money, you know, and then, you know, basically what I'm saying is I'm always write, always writing music on the fly. You know, I used to play in Central Park underneath the tunnels in the bridges and stuff because the acoustics were really good. You know what I mean? And um, I was also able to practice because the acoustics were really good and nobody would bother me. And every once in a while, somebody would throw some change in my bucket and I could eat. I could After eat. watching you do it, I found that there's no better place to rehearse. You can play the same song. If you were like, I'm going to work this song for an hour, if people are coming going on a platform or whatever, and that there's nothing better than like, when you get a New Yorker to give you a dollar, who's just on their commute and you win them over and you're like, that was good. And, or even like, you know, I, I, the times I've done it, I remember, I, I, you know, I'll never forget the time someone was like, the train showed up and they turned around and said like, I don't have a dollar, man, but that was great. I would tip you if I could. Like they told me they wish they could have tipped me and that meant more than the dollar they would have Absolutely. Me. Performing music in public is, it, you're a public servant, essentially. You are working for the public. And that's how, and ne- nowhere have I ever felt that more than, out on the streets, it's like, okay, so I went to New York because down in the South, down in Texas and in California, I've hitchhiked and I lived on the farms and stuff. And I love staying with people, you know, on the farms in Northern California and Vermont and these places, you know, people who were very musically open-minded and it were places that I was able to just be there and contribute music and and, and be appreciated for that. And that's kind of the type of people I've always ended up being around because that's, you know, that's, that's who's going to help you out, you know? Um, and so for me, I knew that New York had more open mics, more open jams, you know, more blues jams, more spoken word, more, more street corners to play on than anywhere. So the open mics, you know how it was when you met me, man. It's just like a place like Lucky Jack's. It's going on the night, and it goes late enough that when we when we're done here, you know, I'm still gonna go hang out down there. Five years later, just because I like to hang out where it's real and where I got a chance, and people like Sasha Chavez down there, you know, giving people a shot, you know, and the open mics. I went to them every day, and it was just so I could be there, and I could be there for hours because you never know when you're going on stage and you're just around music and I'd be sitting around the corner strumming on my guitar and waiting to get on stage and then you would get to perform your songs and then playing on the street was a way for me to be playing during the day, getting better and trying to make some money. But, you know, that's it's illegal, really. And so it's yeah, really so, hard to play on the street. Yeah, I'm bringing that. So that's where you were. That was a big chapter then. Like you went from open mics. And that's where I met you. You're playing the open mics you made a move to where you were start. You went from open mic performer to street hustler and you're playing on the train platforms and you had some real opportunities come out of that. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, that was the biggest, I mean, more than anything else. And I remember just to button it up and then you carry on. You, I remember once a conversation we had and you pointed out like, look, man, I could book the sidewalk cafe and the local 269 and national underground and you name it venue every night for the next month and i will not be able to 
play, you know, for as many people as I would on the train. In like yeah, well, it's like this. If you get 100 people to come see you every night at one of those venues. I'm not knocking those places, but this is no, just, no, this I'm just, just saying, I'm not knocking the venues. If you, get, if you get 100, if you get 100 unique you. people to show up to see you every night of the month, 30 days, 100 different people every night, that's 3,000 people a month. At the Metropolitan stop on the G train or 77th Street on the 6th train, Upper East Side, or any number of places. You can reach that many people or twice that, three times that in a day, you know, in one sitting there playing that guitar. And for me, it's not about the numbers. That's just no, that's just a way no. to quantify it. But because but that's you, what you know, but not understand like you went at it like because of the you like did this analysis of the numbers, but you started doing it and then you had that realization well, it's the thing. Oh, that's it's like, what the reality and, and, and playing. And then you, you started to find other artists from doing that. Absolutely. Well, the thing is, is, you know, when you make that decision to play down in the subway, you know, it's, you know, you, you, you're crossing over into something, you know, you're crossing over into something where it's, you know, it's public performance, but also people aren't asking for that. They're not coming to see you, you know, and, and that way you're going to get a very, real exchange for what you're doing but for me it was that thing it's like okay it's not it's it's not the cops are messing with me when i'm doing it on up on the street they're messing with me on west fourth they're messing with me down on lower east side you know not to say there aren't some spots but it, it, it didn't I, I i went underground because they're more tolerant and you know busking street performing is 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 more you know it's acceptable down there you see it a lot you know and people pay attention to it and for me, I improved so much because I was just doing what I wanted, you know, and I'm like, well, if I, I know what the rat race is in some ways, you know, I've been running the rat race many different ways and I've been used and, you know, and, and been through it and learned a lot of stuff. But, you know, it's like I, I knew with my background, with no with no funding, with no, you know, family that could support my equipment, my gear, ha you know basically having funding from family or whatever, or somebody like that to play the venues the way that it's set up for you to do. It's like, like I said, I'm not knocking that. It just was not a real, a realistic opportunity. And I'm not the only person, you know, there's that's, and those are the people that I started connecting with realizing the artists that to me, it's like, it's not like you don't decide to play the blues. You come down with the blues, man. Mm. Um, but yeah, and and you know, being able to do that, being down on the train in the subways and doing it that way, you know, I found all of a sudden it was like, man, I could just move around to different spots, and then I was playing 10, 12 hours a day, and that's what I wanted to be doing. You know, I wanted to be doing. That's all I wanted to be doing. There's nothing that feels better than making 40, 50 bucks after a you know few hours playing at a spot or two and going up above ground and feeding yourself. You know, and like being tired in that way that you know that you affect a lot of people and that you and that you're improving and that you're getting out of you and it's being heard you know because you're hearing people there and that's another thing i would venture to guess that people are listening to you more when you play in at the metropolitan stop on the g train than when you then you walk into pianos in fact i i'll tell you right now that's the case because i know all of it i know all that stuff rockwood all those places it's cool the people the very people i wish would come to those shows are waiting on the train, you know, it's like, 
whether I really made the choice or not, I was the next, the next situation for me was the, those train cars, those subway cars that are pulling up to the stop that you're playing in between the next, you know, thing for me, next thing I knew based on other musicians that I ran into and performers down there, the next thing I knew is I was playing in those train cars and when those and literally stepping into the train car, when the G train or the R train or the six train, we used to call a six train when you're going uptown, the penthouses, that's where you get your $20 bills, you know, and we'd be going into the penthouses looking to get paid. And, you know, that's where I got the, you know, we would get the biggest tips we ever got, you know, a couple of times got lucky, got a $50, bill. Uh, this dude that worked for the NBA, you know, this one time he gave us a, he gave us a C note. And when I was running with train robbers, um, the group that basically was a collective that I ended up really, um, forming with, you know, a lot of people, but really the main other cat that I was messing with was, uh, you know, Jadon Woodard, who you're familiar with that wound up going into the train robbers project. Well, you know, we came out with a lot of stuff, you know, we would same thing. It's like the people that you want to run into at the national underground. Well, I can tell you where you can find them. They were going to be on the R train, <laughs> you know, going up and down Manhattan and getting off at, you know, 28th and Broadway and going to, you know, Koreatown where so many of the people in the Manhattan music business are. And, you know, we, we figured that stuff out and, you know, we played Brooklyn bowl and a lot of the people that would book the clubs that, like I said, we didn't have the credentials. We, I didn't know anybody, couldn't get the pool, couldn't get the audience, but then the people booking these clubs would see us in the trains and they love that hip hop, blues, soul, New Orleans jazz crossover thing that we were doing. And then booking agents would, you know, people booking venues would get our cards that we were handing out and pay us. You know, we get tipped on the train and then get to go play a gig, you know? And then we were playing in people's backyards in Brooklyn and getting paid, you know, hundred, two hundred, three dollars, and we're like, wow, there's so many. Look what happens when you take it to 
you know, when you take control of that, and those are venues for us, you know, each time the train car door closed and we performed for those two or three minutes in between those stops, that was a captive audience, you know? Just to take a side yeah. bar, you got any good train stories? Um, seeing stabbings in the train. Uh, in the really? middle of you singing? Yeah. Uh, we've seen, you know, people would use people. People would, would would sometimes utilize our performance as a cover to, you know, to, to carry out, you know, uh, pickpocketing. And we'd be such a distraction that sometimes we would be the decoy unintentionally, you know, and we were in weird situations because sometimes you'd see that kind of stuff happening. And as you're going through there and you got to be really careful, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous situation. And, and when, when you're going, that's, it's illegal, you know. Panhandling and train cars is illegal, and, and believe me, they got all kind of tickets to get you. Blocking, that's a ticket they call you for the door. Panhandling itself is a ticket. Um, playing with amplification, uh, singing too loud. I mean, there's just a million tickets they can give you, you know. And um, luckily, luck, luckily, we were we were compelling enough that that the that you know they either didn't pay attention to us or they loved it, and you know, so that the cops. You know, they didn't mess with us, you know, and if you were doing a good job and not disrupting stuff too much, you know, the cops were cool down there, you know, and they would, and they would pretty much let us roll with it. It's different. Things are changing. It's getting more difficult, you know, but when we were doing this, you know, two, three, four years back, it, you know, the way we were doing it wasn't as, you know, wasn't really being done like that, you know, and, and we were able to get away with it. But I really do believe it's because we were good and we had a very powerful crossover message, you know, that soul, blues, hip hop. Louisiana sound reaches yeah. a lot of people and we, you know, we managed, we, we caught the attention of, you know, some powerful people in music, you know, playing in, uh, in Manhattan. We, you know, we, 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 you know, had those hooks out there and, or somebody had their, put their hook out and we bit, you know, and, um, I've gone through a lot of difficulty with that, you know, with what we were doing down on the trains was a really beautiful thing. You know, we, we didn't see ourselves as a band. Um, we saw ourselves as a collective, you know, we, you know, with the train robbers, it wasn't, a, it wasn't something that we wanted to take to the world as like a four man band. You know, there were a lot of people that performed with us and we would do different groups. And we, we really thought that it was a philosophy almost, almost like, um, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat, like with his street movement, Samo back in the, you know, in the late seventies. And then he became a very successful commercial audience, you know, commercial artist we saw that what we were doing is something that was really cool and underground that would go viral by us promoting it um but i think we had such a an effect as a group in those train cars as a necessity to survive in manhattan performing for the public which can be dangerous um the sound that we created in order to win over new yorkers i think for me i did not realize you know that we attracted, you know, the kind of deal, commercial deal that that kind of project would. I had a, there was a big difference between, I think, what I wanted for myself as Charlie Crockett and just what we were projecting on the train. And basically, we ended up signing a, a, a management deal to really with some powerful folks that really saw that we had the potential as a four person band to go out there to you know, a mainstream audience, you know, here and in Europe and all that. And we definitely had the tools to do it. I mean, you know, myself and, and Jay Don and, and uh, Travis Alexander and Jim Schaefer, I mean, we were 
together we were very very good you know but it in the turn and in signing that deal and seeing the reality of what it's like to you know um get hustled onto television where you're going into the you know uh, get, we were going get ready to go on to NBC and 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 do you know some programming there and setting up publishing companies and and photo shoots and you know six month twelve month eighteen month plans for you know outdoor festivals and those like a more global marketing strategy it was all coming at me so fast and at that time I wasn't sure as what I was comfortable. There were a lot of people making plans for you. It was moving very fast. And in some ways I was very angry at those industry people for that. But I think the way I look at it now is that it's just, I know more of what I want as an individual artist. Is it that sort of thing where it's like, you just had to kind of go through it and then realize. And there's a lot of stuff and it moves for us. It was moving super fast. You know, I, I, I think that what we were doing on the trains was, such a strong thing that the this the the you know the how fast the people that we met wanted to take that out to the world based on the way that we were you know at that time i can understand because we were performing we were really on top of stuff you know we were doing it eight to ten hours a day every day making a living purely off the tips as a group supporting ourselves although it was very difficult um to see you know, it's hard to make bigger plans for yourself when you can't see past tomorrow because you're not sure where you're laying your head, you know, from night to night. And you're just trying to, you know, keep enough food in your mouth, you know, so that you don't disappear, <laughs> you know, really. And it was a very confusing time. But I remember sitting in those offices over there in, in, in Koreatown, you know, with, with my former manager and having that contract and the four of us had decided to sign it and we weren't really sure at that time and we just kind of made a decision. I remember in my head, you know, the main thing I thought is I don't know where this is going to go, but I know that I'm going to be way better off for having signed this thing no matter how it turns out. And it's like you're saying, you know, I needed I needed to see a lot of stuff. There were things I needed I needed to learn that, you know, just signing that stuff and being in it in the short time that I did before I disappeared, you know, into the wilderness to let the contract expire. Um, you know, I really started learning after I disappeared, you know, into the woods of California and, you know, that's when yeah. I really started learning what I, what, what, what it was about. So, all right. So you're back, you're back, you're out of the shadows of whatever you had to go through at the end of the train robberies. You're back in New York. You're coming to play my show. You got a CD releasing. We're gonna have a good time. I'm, ha I'm, I'm, so, I'm, I'm having the full band with me on y at your show. Yeah, I'm in the studio this Monday with the same guys that are to uh, record more that are recording with me. At least you know one the or two CD, are gonna be at the, are gonna be at the show at the carnival. Yeah. So the CD for anyone who's made it this far in the interview, the CD will be uh, given out to anyone who throws in the ten dollars suggested donation. That's Charlie's just giving it back to you. And then if you want it from him, you can you know. Ask him nicely, and I'm sure he'll just give it to you. Uh, that's but, right, you know. But so that's moving on. More recordings, bigger, better things. Where are you moving on to next? For me, I just I need to move from town to town. You know, I just need to keep moving from town to town, and that works out because I got some f good friends down in uh, North Carolina who are putting together. A you know, that's where Curtis Eller's from. Is he? I didn't even know that. He's in Raleigh. Oh, we'll be able to talk about based it. Out of Probably knows my friends. Uh, a, a band I, called Carolina Ray. They're putting together a 30. We'll see. We've got about 20 shows. 
confirmed, but we're looking nice. to do as many as 40 dates starting in late September. Uh, um, to close things out, what would you like us to play? I'd have to say uh, Downtrodden Man. Downtrodden I think man. I got that over to you. Uh, uh, off the CD? Yeah, it's pretty yeah. raw recording, but I, it's got it's got Charlie Mills on the trumpet and, it, you know. And that's that's a good one to close it out with. We're going to go on out here with Downtrodden Man. I ain't and, got uh, nobody. I ain't got nobody. So, Charlie, thank you for inaugurating my podcast. Thank you for calling me BZ. And this has been Being Easy with BZ Douglas and Charlie Crockett, who I hope to God you're going to hear a lot more. Oh, BZ, I appreciate it, man. Now let's go pick on that banjo. Let's head on down to Lucky Jack's. <laughs> All right, man. All right. I got the first drink. To help me when I'm ill I ain't got nobody To walk me up this hill I ain't got no secret That you're gonna understand That's why they're calling me The downtrodden man Been keeping me down. Every handed world don't want me around. I do believe if I had wings, I'd still be lonesome. And though I'd fly the river high, fly that river high. And I don't think that they can hear my prayer. And I don't think that they can hear my prayer. And I don't think that they can hear my prayer. And I don't think that they can hear my prayer. And I don't think that they can hear my prayer. And I don't think that they can hear my prayer. And I don't think that they can hear my prayer. And I don't think that they can hear my prayer. I ain't got nobody to help me when I'm ill. I ain't got nobody. To walk me up this hill If I had a secret That you could understand Maybe I wouldn't be such a Downtrodden man About da 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 da